Story number six of The Room in the Tower and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Loretta in Manhattan. The Room in the Tower and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. The Shootings of Aknalish. The dining-room windows, both front and back, the one looking into Oakley Street, the other into a small backyard, with three sooty shrubs in it, known as the garden, were all open, so that the table stood in midstream of such air as there was. But in spite of this the heat was stifling, since, for once in a way, July had remembered that it was the duty of good little summers to be hot. Hot in consequence it had been, heat reverberated from the house walls it rose through the boot from the paving stones it poured down from a large superheated sun that walked the sky all day long in a benignant and golden manner dinner was over but the small party of four who had eaten it still lingered mabel armitage it was she who had laid down the duty of good little summers spoke first oh jim it sounds too heavenly she said it makes me feel cool to think of it just fancy in a fortnight's time we shall all four of us be there in our own shooting lodge farm house said jim well i didn't suppose it was balmoral with our own coffee-coloured salmon river roaring down to join the waters of our own loch jim lit a cigarette mabel you mustn't think of shooting lodges and salmon rivers and locks he said it's a farmhouse rather a big one though I'm sure we shall find it hard enough to fit in. The Salmon River you speak of is a big burn no more, though it appears that salmon have been caught there. But when I saw it, it would have required as much cleverness on the part of a salmon to fit into it as it will require on our parts to fit into our farmhouse, and the lock is a tarn. Mabel snapped the guide to Highland shootings out of my hand, with the rudeness that even a sister should not show her elder brother, and pointed a withering finger at her husband. Acknalise, she declaimed, is situated in one of the grandest and most remote parts of Sutherlandshire, to be let from August the 12th to the end of October. The lodge was shooting and fishing belonging, proprietor supplies two keepers, fishing gilly, boat on lock and dogs, Tenants should secure about five hundred head of grouse and five hundred head of mixed game, including partridge, black game, woodcock, snipe, roe deer, also rabbits in very large number, especially by ferreting. Large baskets of brown trout can be taken from the loch, and whenever the water is high, sea trout and occasional salmon. Lodge contains... Oh, I can't go on. It's too hot, and you know the rest. Rent only three hundred and fifty pounds jim listened patiently well he said what then mabel rose with dignity it's a shooting lodge with a salmon river and a lock just as i have said come madge let's go out it is too hot to sit in the house you'll be calling buxton the major domo next remarked jim and his wife passed by him i had picked up the guide to highland shootings again which my sister had so unceremoniously plucked from me and idly compared the rent and attractions of aknalish with other places that were to let seems cheap too i said why here's another place just the same sort of size and bag for which they asked five hundred pounds here's another at five fifty jim helped himself to coffee Yes, it does seem cheap, he said, but of course it's very remote. It took me a good three hours from Lerg, and I don't suppose I was driving very noticeably. 
below the legal limit, but it's cheap, as you say. Now Madge, who is my wife, has her prejudices. One of them, an extremely expensive one, is that anything cheap has always some hidden and subtle drawback, which you discover when it is too late. And the drawback to cheap houses is drains or offices, the presence, so to speak, of the former, and the absence of the latter, so I hazarded these. No, the drains are all right, said Jim, because I got the certificate of inspector, and as for offices, really I think the servants' parts are better than ours. No, why it's so cheap, I can't imagine. Perhaps the bag is overstated, I suggested. Jim again shook his head. No, that's the funny thing about it, he said. The bag, I am sure, is understated. At least, I walked over the moor for a couple of hours, and the whole place is simply crawling with hairs. Why, you could shoot five hundred hairs alone on it. Hairs, I asked. That's rather queer. So far up, isn't it? Jim laughed. So I thought, and the hairs are queer, too. Big beasts, very dark in color. Let's join the others outside. Jove, what a hot night. Even as Mabel had said, that day fortnight found us all four, the four who had stifled and sweltered in Chelsea, flying through the cool and invigorating winds of the north. The road was in admirable condition, and I should not wonder if for the second time Jim's big napier went not noticeably below the legal limit. The servants had gone straight up, starting the same day as we, while we had got out at Perth, motored to Inverness, and were now on the second day nearing our goal. Never have I seen so depopulated a road. I do not suppose there was a man to a mile of it. We had left Lairg about five that afternoon, expecting to arrive at Aknelish by eight, but one disaster after another overtook us. Now it was the engine, and now a tire that delayed us, till finally we stopped some eight miles short of our destination to light up, for with evening had come a huge rack of cloud out of the west, so that we were cheated of the clear post-sunset twilight of the north, then on again, till... With a little dancing of the car over a bridge, Jim said, That's the bridge of our Salmon River, so look out for the turning up to the lodge. It is to the right, and only a narrow track. You can send her along, Sefton, he called to the chauffeur. We shan't meet a soul. I was sitting in front, finding the speed and the darkness extraordinarily exhilarating. A bright circle of light was cast by our lamps, fading into darkness in front, while at the sides, cut off by the casing of the lamps, the transition into blackness was sharp and sudden. Every now and then, across the circle of illumination, some wild thing would pass, now a bird with hurried flutter of wings, when it saw the speed of the luminous monster would just save itself from being knocked over now a rabbit feeding by the side of the road would dash on to it and then bounce back again but more frequently it would be a hare that sprang up from its feeding and raced in front of us they seemed dazed and scared by the light unable to wheel into the darkness again until time and again i thought we must run over one so narrowly in giving a sort of desperate sideways leap did it miss our wheels then it seemed that one started up almost from under us and i saw to my surprise it was an it was enormous in size and in color apparently quite black for some hundred yards it raced in front of us fascinated by the bright light pursuing it then like the rest it dashed through the darkness but it was too late and with a horrid jolt we ran over it 
at once Sefton slowed down and stopped, for Jim's rule is to go back always and make sure that any poor runover is dead. So we stopped. The chauffeur jumped down and ran back. What was it? Jim asked me as we waited. A hare. Sefton came running back. Yes, sir, quite dead, he said. I picked it up, sir. What for? Thought you might like to see it, sir. It's the biggest hare I ever see, and it's quite black. It was immediately after this that we came to the track up to the house, and in a few minutes we were within doors. There we found that if shooting lodge was a term unsuitable, so also was farmhouse, so roomy, excellently proportioned, and well furnished was our dwelling, while the contentment that beamed from Buxton's face was sufficient testimonial for the offices. In the hall, too, with its big open fireplace, were a couple of big solemn bookcases, full of serious works, such as some educated minister might have left and coming down dressed for dinner before the others i dipped into the shelves then something must long have been vaguely simmering in my brain for i pounced on the book as soon as i saw it i came upon ewell's folklore of the northwest highlands and looked out hair in the index then i read nor is it only witches that are believed to have the power of changing themselves into animals men and women on whom no suspicion of the sort lies are thought to be able to do this and to don the bodies of certain animals notably hares such according to local superstition are easily distinguishable by their size and color which approaches jet black i was up and out early next morning prey to the vivid desire that attacks many folk in new places namely to look on the fresh country and the new horizons and on going out certainly the surprise was great for i had imagined an utterly lonely and solitary habitation instead scarce half a mile away down the steep brayside at the top of which stood our commodious farmhouse ran a typically scottish village street the hamlin no doubt of Achnalish. so steep was this hillside that the village was really remote if it was half a mile away in crow-flying measurement, it must have been a couple of hundred yards below us. But its existence was the odd thing to me. There were some four dozen houses at the least, while we had not seen half that number since leaving Laird. A mile away, perhaps, lay the shining shield of the western sea. To the other side, away from the village, I had no difficulty in recognizing the river and the loch. The house, in fact, was set on a hog's back. From all sides it must needs be climbed to, but, as is the custom of the Scots, no house, however small, should be without its due brightness of flowers. And the walls of this were purple with clematis and orange with trepolium. It all looked very placid, serene and serene and homelike. I continued my tour of exploration and came back rather late for breakfast. A slight check in the day's arrangements had occurred, for the head-keeper, McLaren, had not come up, and the second, Sandy Ross, reported that the reason for this had been the sudden death of his mother the evening before. She was not known to be ill, but just as she was going to bed, she had thrown up her arms, screamed suddenly as if with fright, and was found to be dead. Sandy, who reported this news to me after breakfast, was just a slow, polite Scotchman, rather shy rather awkward 
just as he finished we were standing about outside the back door there came up from the stables the smart very english-looking sefton in one hand he carried the black hair he touched his hat to me as he went in just to show it to mr armitage sir he said she's as black as a boot he turned into the door but not before sandy ross had seen what he carried and the slow polite scotchman was instantly turned into some furtive frightened-looking man and where might it be that you found that sir he asked now the black hair superstition had already begun to intrigue me why does that interest you i asked the slow scotch look was resumed with an effort it'll no interest me he said i just asked there are unco many black hairs in Achnalish. then his curiosity got the better of him she'd have been nigh to where the road passes by and on to Achnalish, she asked the hare yes we found her on the road there sandy turned away she ay sat there he said There were a number of little plantations climbing up the steep hillside from Achnalish to the moor above, and we had a pleasant slack sort of morning shooting there, walking through and round them with a nondescript tribe of beaters, among whom the serious Buxton figured. We had fair enough sport, but of the hares which Jim had seen in such profusion, none that morning came to the gun, till at last, just before lunch, there came out of the apex of one of these plantations some thirty yards from where jim was standing a very large dark colored hare for one moment i saw him hesitate for he holds the correct view about long or doubtful shots at hares then he put up his gun to fire sandy who had walked round outside after giving the beaters their instructions was at this moment close to him and with incredible quickness rushed upon him and with his stick struck up the barrels of the gun before he could fire black hair he cried you'd shoot the black hair there's no shooting of black hairs at all in Achnalish, and mark that never have i seen so sudden and extraordinary a change in a man's face it was as if he had just prevented some blackguard on the street from murdering his wife then he seemed to recover himself i ask your pardon sir he said to jim i was upset with a thing and another and the black hair you found dead last night uh, i'm blathering again but there's no a hair shot on Achnalish, that's sure jim was still looking in mere speechless astonishment at sandy when i came up and though shooting is dear to me so too is folklore but we've taken the shooting of Achnalish, sandy i said there was nothing there about not shooting hares sandy suddenly boiled up again for a minute and maybe there was nothing there about shooting the burns and the women he cried i looked round and saw that by now the beaters had all come through the wood of them buxton and jim's valet who was also among them stood apart all the rest were standing round us too with gleaming eyes and open mouths hanging on the debate and forced so i imagine from their imperfect knowledge of english to attend closely in order to catch the drift of what went on every now and then a murmur of gaelic passed between them and this somehow i found peculiarly disconcerting 
But what have the hairs to do with the children or women of Aknalish? I asked. There was no reply to this beyond the reiterated sentence. There's no shooting of hairs in Aknalish, whatever. And then Sandy turned to Jim. That's the end of the bitwood, sir, he said. We've been around. Certainly the beat had been very satisfactory. A row had fallen to Jim. One ought also to have fallen to me, but remained, if not standing at any rate, running away. We had a dozen of black game, four pigeons, six brace of grouse. These were, of course, but outliers, as we had not gone on to the moor proper at all. Some thirty rabbits and four couple of woodcock. This, it must be understood, was just from the fringe of plantations about the house. But this was all we meant to do to-day, making only a morning of it, since our ladies had expressly desired first lessons in the art of angling in the afternoon, so that they too could be busy. Excellently, too, had Sandy worked the beat, leaving us now, after going, as he said, all around, a couple of hundred yards only from the house, at a few minutes to two. So, after a little private signaling from Jim to me, he spoke to Sandy, dropping the hair question altogether. "'Well, the beat has gone excellently,' he said, "'and this afternoon we'll be fishing. Please settle with the beaters every evening, and tell me what you have paid out. Good morning to all.' We walked back to the house, but the moment we had turned, a hum of confabulation began behind us, and looking back I saw Sandy and all the beaters in close whispering conclave. Then Jim spoke. More in your line than mine, he said. I prefer shooting a hare to routing out some cock and bull story as to why I shouldn't. What does it all mean? I mentioned what I had found in Yule's last night. Then do you think it was we who killed the old lady on the road, and that I was going to kill somebody else this morning, he said. How does one know that they won't say that rabbits are their aunts, and will cock their uncles, and grouse their children? I have never heard such rot, and to-morrow we'll have a hair-drive. Blow the grouse. We'll settle this hair question first. Jim by this time was in the frame of mind typical of the English when their rights are threatened. He had the shooting of Aknalish, on which were hares, Sir Hares, and if he chose to shoot hares, neither papal bull nor royal charter could stop him. Then there'll be a row, said I, and Jim sniffed scornfully. At lunch Sandy's remark about the sickness, which I had forgotten till that moment, was explained. Fancy that horrible influenza getting here, said Madge. Mabel and I went down to the village this morning, and, oh, Ted, you can get all sorts of things from Mackintoshes to peppermints at the most heavenly shop, and there was a child there looking awfully ill and feverish. So we inquired. It was the sickness. That was all they knew. But from what the woman said, it's clearly influenza, sudden fever, and all the rest of it. Bad type, I asked. Yes, there have been several deaths among the old people from pneumonia following it. Now, I hope that as an Englishman I too have a notion of my rights, and attempt anyhow to enforce them, as a general rule, if they are wantonly threatened. But if a mad bull wishes to prevent my going across a certain field, and do not insist on my rights, but go round instead, since I see no reasonable hope of convincing the bull that according to the constitution of my country I may walk in this field unmolested,
and that afternoon as madge and i drifted about the lock while i was not employed in disentangling her flies from each other or her hair or my coat i pondered over our position with regard to the hares and the men of Achnalish, and thought that the question of the bull in the field represented our standpoint pretty accurately jim had the shooting of Achnalish, and that undoubtedly included the right to shoot hares so too he might have the right to walk over a field in which was a mad bull but it seemed to me not more futile to argue with the bull than to hope to convince these folk of Achnalish that the hares were as was assuredly the case only hares and not embodiments of their friends and relations for that beyond all doubt was their belief and it would take not half an hour's talk but perhaps a couple of generations of education to kill that belief or even to reduce it to the level of a superstition at present it was no superstition the terror and incredulous horror on sandy's face when jim raised his gun to fire at the hare told me that it was a belief as sober and commonplace as our own belief that the hares were not incarnations of living folk in Achnalish. Also, virulent influenza was raging in the place, and Jim proposed to have a hare drive tomorrow. What would happen? That evening, Jim raved about it in the smoking room. But good gracious man, what can they do? he cried what's the use of an old gaffer from Achnalish saying i've shot his granddaughter and when he is asked to produce the corpse telling the jury that we've eaten it but that he has got the skin as evidence what skin a hare skin oh folklore is all very well in its way a nice subject for discussion when topics are scarce but don't tell me it can enter into practical life what can they do they can shoot us i remarked the canny god-fearing scotchman shoot us for shooting hares he asked well it's a possibility however i don't think you'll have much of a hare drive in any case why not because you won't get a single native beater and you won't get a keeper to come either you'll have to go with buxton and your man then i'll discharge sandy sniped jim that would be a pity he knows his work jim got up well his work tomorrow will be to drive hares for you and me said jim or do you funk i funk i replied the scene the next morning was extremely short jim and i went out before breakfast and found sandy at the back door silent and respectful in the yard were a dozen young highlanders who had beaten for us the day before morning sandy said jim shortly we'll drive hares today we ought to get a lot in those narrow gaps above get a dozen beaters more can you there will be nae hair drive here said sandy quietly i've given you your orders said jim sandy turned to the group of beaters outside and spoke half a dozen words in gaelic next moment the yard was empty and they were all running down the hillside towards Achnalish one stood on the skyline a moment waving his arms making some signal as i suppose to the village below then sandy turned again and where are your beaters sir he asked for the moment i was afraid jim was going to strike him but he controlled himself you are discharged he said
The hair drive, therefore, since there were neither beaters nor keeper, McLaren, the head keeper, having been given this day off to bury his mother, was clearly out of the question, and Jim, still blustering rather, but a good bit taken aback at the sudden discipline defection of the beaters, was in betting humour that they would all return by to-morrow morning. Meanwhile, the post, which should have arrived before now, had not come, though Mabel, from her bedroom window, had seen the postcard on its way up the drive a quarter of an hour ago. At that a sudden idea struck me, and I ran to the edge of the hog's back on which the house was set. It was even as I thought. The postcard was just striking the high road below, going away from the house and back to the village, without having left our letters. I went back to the dining-room. Everything apparently was going wrong this morning. The bread was stale, the milk was not fresh, and the bell was rung for Buxton. Quite so, neither milkman nor baker had called. From the point of view of folklore, this was admirable. There's another cock-and-bull story called taboo, I said. It means that nobody will supply you with anything. My dear fellow, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, said Jim, helping himself to marmalade. I laughed. You are irritated, I said, because you are beginning to be afraid that there is something in it. Yes, quite true, he said, but who could have supposed there was anything in it? Ah, dash it, there can't be. A hare is a hare, except when it's your first cousin, I said. Then I shall go out and shoot first cousins by myself, he said. That, I am glad to say, in the light of what happened, we dissuaded him from doing, and instead he went off with Madge down the burn, and, I may confess, occupied myself the whole morning, ensconced in a thick piece of shrub, on the edge of the steep brae above Acknaleesh, and watching, through a field-glass, what went on there. One could see, as from a balloon almost, the street with its houses was spread like a map below. First, then, there was a funeral, the funeral, I suppose, of the mother of McLaren, attended, I should say, by the whole village, but after that there was no dispersal of the folk to their work. It was as if it was the Sabbath. They hung about the street talking. Now one group would break up, but it would only go to swell another, and no one went either to his house or to the fields. Then, shortly before lunch, another idea occurred to me, and I ran down the hillside, appearing suddenly in the street, to put it to the test. Sandy was there, but he turned his back square on me, as did everyone else, and as I approached any group, talk fell dead. But a certain movement seemed to be going on. Where they stood and talked before, they now moved and were silent. Soon I saw what that meant. None would remain in the street with me. Every man was going to his house. The end house of the street was clearly the heavenly shop we had been told of yesterday. The door was open, and a small child was looking round it as I approached, for my plan was to go in, order something, and try to get into conversation. But while I was still a yard or two off, I saw through the glass of the door a man inside come quickly up and pull the child roughly away, banging the door and locking it. I knocked and rang, but there was no response. Only from inside came the crying of the child. Cutting fuel. Fuel. The street, which had been so busy and populous, was now completely empty. 
It might have been the street of some long deserted place, but that thin smoke curled here and there above the houses. It was so silent, too, as the grave, but for all that I knew it was watching. From every house I felt sure I was being watched by eyes of mistrust and hate, yet no sign of living being could I see. There was to me something rather eerie about this. To know one is watched by invisible eyes is never, I suppose, quite a comfortable sensation. To know that those eyes are all hostile does not increase the sense of security. So I just climbed back up the hillside again, and from my thicket above the bray again I peered down. Once more the street was full. Now all this made me uneasy. The taboo had been started, and, since not a soul had been near us since Sandy gave the word, whatever it was, that morning was in excellent working order. Then what was the purport of these meetings and colloquies? What else threatened? The afternoon told me. It was about two o'clock when these meetings finally broke up, and at once the whole village left the street for the hillsides, much as if they were all returning to work. The only odd thing indeed was that no one remained behind. Women and children alike went out, all in little parties of two and three. Some of these I watched rather idly, for I had formed the hasty conclusion that they were all going back to their usual employments, and saw that here a woman and a girl were cutting dead bracken and heather. That was reasonable enough, and I turned my glass on others. Group after group I examined, all doing the same thing, cutting fuel, fuel. Then vaguely, with a sense of impossibility, a thought flashed across me. Again it flashed, more vividly. This time I left my hiding place with considerable alacrity and went to find Jim down by the burn. I told him exactly what I had seen and what I believed it meant, and I fancied that his belief in the possibility of folklore entering the domain of practical life was very considerably quickened. In any case, it was not a quarter of an hour afterwards that the chauffeur and I were going, precisely as fast as the Napier was able, along the road to Lairg. We had not told the women what my conjecture was, because we believed that, making the dispositions we were making, there was no cause for alarm sounding. One private signal only existed between Jim within the house that night and me outside. If my conjecture proved to be correct, he was to place a light in the window of my room, which I should see returning after dark from Lairg. My ostensible reason for going was to get some local fishing flies. As we flowed, there is no other word for the movement of these big cars but that, over the road to Lairg, I ran over everything in my mind. I felt no doubt whatever that all the brushwood and kindling I had seen being gathered in was to be piled after nightfall round our walls and set on fire. This certainly would not be done till after dark. Indeed, we both felt sure that it would not be done till it was supposed that we were all abed. It remained to see whether the police at Lairg agreed with my conjecture, and it was to ascertain this that I was now flowing there. I told my story to the chief constable as soon as I got there, omitting nothing and, I think, exaggerating nothing. His face got graver and graver as I proceeded. "'Yes, sir, you did right to come.' He said, 
the folk at Achnelish are the dourest and the most savage in all Scotland. You'll have to give up this hare-hunting, though, whatever, he added. He rang up his telephone. I'll get five men, he said, and I'll be with you in ten minutes. Our plan of campaign was simple. We were to leave the car well out of sight of Achnelish, and, supposing the signal was in my window, steal up from all sides to command the house from every direction. It would not be difficult to make our way unseen through the plantations that run up close to the house, and hidden at the margins we could see whether the brushwood and heather were piled up round the lodge. There we should wait to see if anybody attempted to fire it. That somebody, whenever he showed his light, would be instantly covered by a rifle and challenged. It was about ten when we dismounted and stalked our way up to the house. The light burned in my window. All else was quiet. Personally, I was unarmed, and so, when I had planted the men in places of advantageous concealment round the house, my work was over. Then I returned to Sergeant Duncan, the chief constable, at the corner of the hedge by the garden, and waited. How long we waited I do not know, but it seemed as if eons slipped by over us. Now and then an owl would hoot, now and then a rabbit ran out from cover and nibbled the short, sweet grass of the lawn. The night was thickly overcast with clouds, and the house seemed no more than a black dot, with slits of light where windows were lit within. By and by even these slits of illumination were extinguished and other lights appeared in the top story. After a while they, too, vanished. No sign of life appeared on the quiet house. Then, suddenly, the end came. I heard a foot grate on the gravel. I saw the gleam of a lantern, and heard Duncan's voice. Mon, he shouted, if you move hand or foot I fire, my rifle bead is dead on you. Then I blew the whistle, the others ran up, and in less than a minute it was all over. The man we closed in on was McLaren. They killed my mother with that hell carriage, he said, as she just sat on the road, poor body, who had never hurt them. And that seemed to him an excellent reason for attempting to burn us all to death. But it took time to get into the house. Their preparations had been singularly workmanlike, for every window and door on the ground floor was wired up. Now we had Achnelish for two months, but we had no wish to be burned or otherwise murdered. What we wanted was not a prosecution of our head keeper, but peace, the necessities of life and beaters. For that we were willing to shoot no hares and release McLaren. An hour's conclave next morning settled these things. The ensuing two months were most enjoyable, and relations were the friendliest. But if anybody wants to test how far what Jim still calls cock and bull stories can enter into practical life, I should suggest to go a shootin' hares at Achnelish. End of the shootings of Achnelish.